The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Title of my message for you tonight is Safe, Sent, and Sanctified. And again, we find ourselves in the midst of this prayer here in John 17. Now, something you should know is there are some 650 different recorded prayers in the Bible. Did you know that? That's a lot of prayers that have been written down, and, and all of them are fantastic and, and worthy of your consideration and your study. I mean, if you ever want to grow your prayer life, just begin to study the prayers in the Bible. These are inspired prayers. However, having said that, there's something particularly special about the prayer that's recorded here in John 17. And it's special because of who prayed it. I mean, the fact that Jesus prayed this prayer makes it a perfect prayer. How often do you get the chance to to, to see a perfect anything? Well, this is a perfect prayer because it's from the lips of Jesus. And the other thing that makes this prayer special and, and worth Um, maybe a little bit more consideration is the fact that in this prayer, Jesus prays for us. Aren't you curious about what Jesus would pray for you? In, In studying John 17, you get a window into his heart for you and your life. Well, the prayer itself consists of three different parts. We looked at the first part in our study last week where Jesus prays for himself and he asks that the Father will glorify him, that he might in turn glorify the Father. Now we're in the second movement of the prayer and we're going to see Jesus praying for his disciples. And then in the third part of the prayer, he prays for all those who will come to faith as a result of their testimony. But today we focus on that second portion of the prayer where he prays for the disciples. And and he points this out in verse 9. Now just jump down to there with me for just a moment. He says, I pray for them. He says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world right now. Right now, I'm focusing my prayer on the guys that are within earshot of me. This doesn't mean that you should never pray for the world, obviously. I mean, there are plenty of examples in Scripture. For instance, where Jesus calls on his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into the field, for the fields are white into harvest, but the laborers are few. And so God has a heart for the world, and he encourages us to pray along those lines. But in this particular case, Jesus directs and limits the scope of his prayer to these 11 guys who are standing around him, these guys that he spent the last three and a half years with. Now, perhaps at this point, you might be tempted to want to check out and say, well, I, I suppose this part of the prayer doesn't apply to me then if he's just praying for the disciples. Ah, ah, ah. Let's remember what the word disciple means. It comes from the Greek word mathiti, and it literally means an apprentice, a learner, or a follower. So if you are a follower of Jesus here tonight, which I hope many of you are, then that makes you a disciple, which means that this part of the prayer applies to you. So are you curious to know what Jesus prayed for you? He prays three things. He prays that you would be kept safe, 
that you would be sent out and that you would be set apart. He prays that you'd be kept safe, that you'd be sent out and that you'd be set apart. Let's, let's kind of unpack that a little bit by, by reading through our text, beginning in verse 6. He says, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they've obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you've given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. Again, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they're yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I'll remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. So protect them. Make note of that. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. That last part of verse 12 is a reference to Judas Iscariot, who would go on to betray him. But I want to draw your attention to Jesus. Two phrases there in verses 11 and 12 where he specifically outlines this request to pray for the protection and safety of his disciples. It's something he said he did while he was here on earth, but now he's returning to the Father, and so he asks that they would be continually kept safe and protected. Think about it. While Jesus was on earth, he was their protection. He made sure that nothing happened to those guys. Isn't that great? You know, Jesus is with you. You know, you're in, you know, remember the commercial, you're in good hands with Allstate? You're in better hands with Jesus, amen? And so he says, you know, I want you to continue to protect them. He protected them all throughout those three and a half years. When they found themselves in the midst of a terrible storm, no problem, he calmed it. When the Pharisees tried to hassle them, no problem, he defended them. And when the enemy asked to sift them, no problem, Jesus prayed for them. But again, now he knows he's leaving. His time is short. And so his request is that his disciples would be kept safe. Safety is such a priority for us, isn't it? I mean, we go to great lengths to protect ourselves and the ones we love. I'm thinking back to the time when my kids were, were little. You know, when you've got little kids, everything seems like a danger. Maybe you, you have little ones and they're toddlers or in kindergarten or, or whatever, and you've got those stickers on the back of your car like, hey, be careful, I've got a baby on board, you know? And, and in those early years, we would <clears throat> do all kinds of things to ensure our kids' safety. We had gates, not just at the bottom of our stairs, but another one at the top of our stairs, and we had these little outlet protectors on all of the outlets in our home. And then we had all of this padding on all of the corners of all of the sharp objects in our home. And I mean, I swear my wife would have loved to have just wrapped our kids in bubble wrap before sending them outside, you know. It's like we want to keep them safe. And so too, that doesn't really change as we get older. You know, even as adults, we continue to wear sunscreen to protect ourselves from the elements and the 
the UV rays of the sun. We wear bug spray to keep the mosquitoes off. We put alarms on our cars and, and we have locks on our doors and camera systems on our homes, all in an effort to protect ourselves from potential dangers. Sometimes you'll walk down the street and you'll see a home and they've got you know, a little sign posted in their yard that says protected by such and such security system. And, and we, we even make a big deal about safety around here, praise the Lord. And we have a security team that watches and monitors all of the exits and the property. And, and even I have, this is such a trip, I have my own personal security detail. Um, and, and my friend Tony's sitting right over here. Everybody say, hey, Tony. So Tony follows me around on Saturday night, and, and you might not interact with him or see him, but he's there and he's watching you. So don't try anything, okay? And I've got a guy that's just kind of watching me all day on Sunday. It's such a gift and such a blessing that our security team provides for me. I mean, wouldn't, I, sometimes I wish I could carry these guys around with me all throughout my week. You know, wouldn't it be great just to know you have a personal bodyguard just to watch you and keep you safe? Well, according to Jesus' prayer, that's exactly what we have. But as great as Tony is, he eventually gets tired. He needs his sleep. But check out your bodyguard. This is what Psalm 121 verses 4 and 5 says. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. It says, Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. Aren't you glad to know that you have a personal bodyguard? He's watching over you every moment of every day. You know, in light of that, maybe we should start wearing a little sign around our necks, just like those security signs in, that people post in their front yards, and ours could just say, protected at all times of the day and night by Almighty God. Amen. <laughs> Nothing gets to you that doesn't first get filtered through his fingers. And whatever he allows into your life, you know that it ultimately comes to bring you good and him glory. Now, the way he protects us is interesting. And he describes it in verse 11 when he says, Father, keep them safe by the power of my name. You're not just protected. You are protected specifically at this moment by the power of his name. Let's talk about that. Names are important, aren't they? I mean, especially to God. In the Bible, a person's name was tantamount or corresponded with their character. You might put it like this. In the Bible, name equals nature. That's why on occasion when God would do such a radical work in somebody's life, he would give them a new name after that transformation to correspond with the change that had been wrought in their spirit. So this is how Jacob becomes Israel, and, and Simon becomes Peter, and Saul becomes Paul. In each case, the person's new name, it related to their new God-given identity. And so too with God. When he reveals a name to us, he is giving us an insight into his character, his makeup, and his nature. Now, while Jesus was on earth, he revealed the name and nature of his Father. In fact, if you go back to verse 6, he says, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me. Now, there's a little footnote there that will direct you to the bottom of your Bible, and it will tell you that more fully this verse could be translated, I have revealed your name to them. How did he do this? I'll explain. 
All the way back in Exodus chapter 3, God reveals himself to Moses by the name I am. Moses says, who should I say sent me? He says, I am that I am. It's powerful, but it's also puzzling and curious. I mean, as far as names go, that's rather interesting, wouldn't you agree? It feels like an incomplete sentence. I am what? And of course, the implication to Moses on that day was, I am whatever you need me to be. But then Jesus comes on the scene and he fills in the blanks for us on who God is when he says things like, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the the, the door, I am the bread, I am the vine, I am the light of the world. And so he, he fills in the picture, he reveals the names of God, not only to his disciples, but to us. And now he prays that the disciples would be protected or kept safe by those very names. You guys need to know something. The name of Jesus that watches over you to protect you is the most powerful name in the universe. Every demon must bow and submit before it. It it, it is this name that God has given us permission to use for our protection. It's kind of like, you know, when you give someone power of attorney, they have the right to make decisions for you on your behalf. You have authority to sign documents in that person's name, whether it be related to their banking or their health decisions or whatever. Jesus says, I give you power of authority to use my name. Remember that the next time you find yourself being plagued by by scary thoughts Maybe you're in your room, it's late at night, and you just get attacked by the enemy, and you can just feel the presence of darkness closing in on you. You just begin to say the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus, and darkness must bow. It must flee in response to that name. His name is healing. His name is life. His name is power. And when you come against the enemy in the name of Jesus, he must submit. I like the way Proverbs 18.10 puts it. Let's read this verse together out loud. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. You just keep running to the name of the Lord. He's your creator, the covenant-keeping, eternal I am, your provider and savior, the one who leads, guides, and protects. He's the Lamb of God who lays down his life for you. He is Jesus, and you are kept safe by him. This is his first prayer for the disciples, that they would be safe. Father, keep them safe. And notice in verse 13 how knowing we're safe produces joy within our hearts. He says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they might have the full measure of my joy within them. Don't you love how Jesus talks about the full measure of his joy? He's going to say, Lord, Give him a trickle of joy or a drop of joy. He says, I want you to experience the full measure of my joy. It's his joy. The closer you draw to Jesus, in other words, the more joy you're going to experience. Think about it like this. Jesus was the most joy-filled individual who has ever lived. And I don't know that that comes across all the time in the way that he's presented or for that matter, in the way that Christianity is presented. Oftentimes, it looks like the people who are, you know, espousing Christianity just finish sucking on a lemon, and they talk about the joy of the Lord is my strength, and I've got that joy, joy, joy down 
in my heart. And we're thinking, if you've got the joy in your heart, would you mind letting it express itself on your face every once in a while? You know, there's joy in Jesus. And so, oftentimes we mistakenly associate seriousness with holiness, which, which is actually, actually inaccurate. I'm not trying to say there aren't sobering things about what it means to follow the Lord, but I do believe that the more spirit-filled a person is, the more they will bubble over with joy. And Jesus modeled that for us. And you can be joy-filled because you know you're watched over and protected. You're kept safe by the name of the Lord. So that's the first thing he prays, that we would be kept safe. The second thing he prays is that we would be sent out. And we see this in verses 14 through 18. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they're not of the world any more than I'm of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now listen to verse 18. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And so Jesus prays for us to be sent out. And he talks in these verses about our relationship to this world that we live in. Now, whenever the Bible talks about the world, you need to, you need to identify the context in which it's being spoken of because it uses that same word in a couple of different ways. Sometimes when it talks about the world, it's talking about the created world. Other times, it's talking about all the people. For God so loved the world. He loved all the people in this world. And then there are times in Scripture when it references the world and it's talking about the anti-God kind of culture, pervasive culture that is opposed to God and his rule. And that's the sense that Jesus uses it here. The first thing he expresses in his prayer is a desire for us to remain in the world. We see this in verse 15. He says, my prayer, Father, isn't that you take them out of the world, which you know, if I'm being honest, sometimes I wish he would, you know? How many of you have ever looked around at society crumbling, I mean, to pieces all around us and thought it'd be kind of nice to just leave? And, and maybe you've, you've even thought about if I could just move out of California and the politics here and, and just kind of the, the, the godlessness that, that seems to permeate this this side of the country and it just it just seems to infect everything and I have to admit the thought of picking up and packing up and moving far 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 away from this messed up place has been tempting and I think this is something Christians have always wrestled with this this desire to want to escape and we've gone about that in different ways some have tried to escape worldliness by moving out of the city to, to friendlier climates or environments. Others have gone a step further and they've, you know, become hermits or joined monasteries or convents. And then there are a few peculiar individuals who take even more drastic measures. For instance, there was once a, a Syrian monk, his name was Simon, and he, he had a, an, a deep-seated desire to want to get away from 
the trappings of, of this world and the temptations of this life. And, and so first he moved out of the city and he, he joined a convent, but he found that he was still tempted there. And he kept taking further and further measures to remove himself from people and the world and everything. He just wanted to be in the heavens until eventually he decided to climb to the top of a 60-foot pole where he stayed for the next 37 years. He survived as people would, you know, the kindness of strangers, they would bring him food. I don't know if they shot a slingshot up there or what. I don't know how he did his business. I'm not going to go there. But I do know that the guy lived on the top of a 60-foot pole for 37 years. His name was Simon the Stylite. He became quite famous. And maybe you'd want to just, you're like, oh, that appeals to me on a certain level, you know, just get away from it all. And yet, while the desire to pull away from society is, is in some ways natural, and understandable, we need to remember that it's, it's also antithetical to our mission. I mean, how are you supposed to witness to a world you're hiding from? Paul said it like this. This is Romans 10, 14, and I'd love it if we could read this together out loud. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? I mean, pretty obvious, logical sequence of events. The world needs the gospel. And in order to hear the gospel, there need to be preachers to proclaim it. Sometimes we forget that when Jesus gave the disciples the Great Commission, he wasn't just offering friendly advice. He wasn't giving them a helpful suggestion, but rather he was issuing a command. Our mission, church, is to take the whole gospel to the whole world. And you can't do that without being in the world. So we're to be in the world. That's a key component to this passage we're looking at. But the challenge then becomes this. How do you live in this world without becoming worldly, right? Isn't that what we're trying to protect our kids from? I mean, the same Jesus who said he wanted us in the world also said that we're not to be of the world. We see that in verse 16. What does that mean, to be of the world? It means to adopt a worldly mindset or a, a worldview that is shaped by the thoughts and opinions of the people who are on this planet who don't know the Lord. This is how 1 John 2 puts it. And again, let's read this together out loud. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For the, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Don't love the world, the Bible warns. It's interesting, isn't it, to hear the Bible, which has so much to say on the topic of love. It tells us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We're to love this book. And, and we're even called to love our enemies. And so the Bible has a lot to say on love and what we should love. But here it specifically outlines one thing that we are not to love, and that is the world. He defines the world for us as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In other words, it's all the stuff that wants to cast doubt on the goodness of God, and it wants to pull your heart away from God. 
That's why we're really warned against it. It'll drag you down. It'll mess you up. I mean, the, the sinful pleasures of this world, they can offer you a few moments of guilty pleasure, but so often those kicks are followed by the kickback. And those moments of pleasure are followed oftentimes by a lifetime of regret and pain. On the flip side, you'll never regret following the Lord. The one who does the will of the Lord abides forever. You see, this world is transitory. It's passing away. So, so where does all that lead us? Leave us, rather. I mean, what does it look like to live in the world without being of the world? How do you do that? The answer is, it looks exactly like Jesus. In this area, as in every other model, he, every other area, rather, he is our model. You see, in verse 18, Jesus says, I'm sending them out even as you sent me into the world. Jesus was amazing. You can say amen to that. <laughs> he managed to live in the world without becoming part of it. He embraced sinners without ever partaking of their sin. He simultaneously managed to earn the reputation of being the friend of tax collectors and sinners, and he earned the reputation of being a holy man, a man of God. He was both the friend of sinners and the friend of God. People who were nothing like him really liked him. And, get this, he liked people who were nothing like him. How did he manage to do that? And the answer is, he never lost sight of the fact that he had been sent. He was aware of his mission. Jesus lived his whole life on mission. He knew that he'd been sent by God and sent for a purpose. And he speaks of this purpose on several different occasions. He talked about how he had come and had been anointed by God to heal the sick, to release the captives, to proclaim the good news, to rescue sinners, and so on and so forth. And now he turns to the disciples. He says, just as I received this commission, now I'm handing it off to you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And so this idea of being sent ought to, to permeate our thoughts and, and really give shape to the way we approach life. Here's how that looks. It means each of us, regardless of our, um, our, our uh, profession, regardless of what you do to earn your living, all of us are missionaries. You may have not have thought of yourself in that light before, but it's true. And, and let's just think through what a missionary is and, and how a missionary goes about their lives. They realize that they've been sent to a specific place. They chose it. They were sent there on purpose. They know that they're on assignment. And while they might adopt the culture of a place, they might embrace the customs of a place, they might learn the language of a place, they never lose sight of their main mission, which is to bring people to Jesus. If you're a doctor, you're a missionary doctor. If you're a lawyer, you're a missionary lawyer. If you're a school teacher, you are a missionary school teacher. That's how we're to live. Because just as the Father sent Jesus, He has sent us into the world. And God knows the more like Jesus you become, the more successful you'll be in this endeavor. And that's why, and I'll close with this, that's why he's given us his word. 
He's given us his word to set us apart or sanctify us. And sanctify us. And that's the third thing that Jesus prays. After praying for us to be kept safe and after praying for us to be sent out, he prays for us to be sanctified or set apart. And we see this in verses 17 and 19. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And for them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Obviously, the theme in these verses is this idea of sanctification. What is that? The word sanctified simply means set apart. And it basically describes the process by which you are being molded and shaped into the image of Jesus. This process is something that begins the moment you surrender your life and, and get saved. You, you yield your heart and surrender your will to the Lord. And that day begins the process of God molding you and shaping you into the image of his son. And you graduate on the day you meet Jesus and you're fully conformed into his image. Now, when it comes to this process, there are all kinds of tools that God uses to help aid us along. We're not, it's not like we're left to our own devices. He has given us his Holy Spirit, praise the Lord. And the Spirit is working in you, refining you, and shaping you, and molding you. He also uses things like relationships, and circumstances, and trials to help purify your motives and, and align your heart with heaven. And then another important tool that he uses to grow us into the image of Jesus is his word. And that's what he focuses on here. The word of God is a dominant theme in this whole portion of Jesus' prayer. In verse 8, Jesus talks about giving his word to the disciples. And then a couple of verses before that, in verse 6, he talks about them accepting the word and obeying the word. In verse 17, he talks about them being sanctified by the truth, which he says is the word. And so if you want to grow into the image of Jesus, all of those components need to be present in your relationship to the word of God. You must first accept it, you must obey it, and then you must release it so that it can change you from the inside out. Let's read this verse. This is Colossians 3.16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I love that first phrase. Let the word, it means you have a choice when it comes to this word, how it's received tonight because the word is going out. You can let it dwell in you richly. Now the word dwell there is a word that literally means to settle down and be at home. You can hold the word at arm's length. You can reject the word. You can allow the word to go in one ear and out the other. Or you can allow it to sink down and, and permeate every aspect of your being. You can release it so that it, it, its power and its fruit is tasted by those you come into contact with. And that's what it means to let it dwell in you richly. And at the end of the day, either this book is true or it's not. Either this is God's word, and if it is, we come under it, we submit to it, 
We don't get to decide which parts of it we take and believe in the parts that we reject. This is not a buffet. This is not hometown buffet or soup plantation. You don't get to take a pair of scissors like, who was it, Thomas Jefferson, and cut out the parts you disagree with. It's either all true or it's all a lie. And if it's true, then you need to come under its authority and it needs to be the governing power in every decision that you make. In the early, since I was just at Forest Home, they shared this story, and it's so powerful. I wanted to share it with you guys. In the early days of, of his ministry, Billy Graham really underwent a crisis of faith with pertaining to this book. And he was just getting started, and the crowds were just beginning to grow, but there were things that troubled him about God's word, things that he didn't understand, questions that lingered, doubts that remained. And so he actually went to Forest Home Camp there in Big Bear, California. And he was just wrestling in prayer one night. And he went to his cabin, and outside of his cabin there was, there was a, a, a tree stump. And he opened his Bible, and he set it on the tree stump, and he began to pray and ask God, God, there, I want to believe your word, but there are things I'm, I'm struggling with. Please reveal to me in my heart whether I can trust your word and build my life on it. And this is what he said. He said, in that moment, I sensed the presence and power of God like never before. And I knew that a spiritual battle had been fought and won. Amen. I went when I was there and I visited this place. And let me just tell you, you know, it's, it's one of those places. There are, there are places where God meets people and it alters the course of history. And this is one of those places. You know, it was like an altar that Billy Graham built right there in the middle of Forest Falls, California at, at uh, Forest Home Christian Camp. And, and from there, it was a couple of weeks later that he goes to Los Angeles, California, and he begins to hold an event, and over the course of the next eight weeks, they keep adding nights and adding nights because the people keep coming. And by the end of it, some 300,000 people had heard the gospel preached, and that launched or sparked, if you will, the evangelistic nature and this crusade movement that would see Billy Graham preach to millions of people over the course of his career. And wouldn't you know it, that a hallmark of his ministry from that day forward became the phrase, the Bible says... The Bible, I don't care what people say, the Bible says it. Let God be true and every man a liar. Why? Because there is power in this book and it sets you apart so that you can be powerful in this world. The more the word gets into you, the more God's power is released through you. So that's why we get together and I open the word. Week after week, month after month, year after year, we sit under the teaching of God's word. We release the word knowing that it never returns void, but it comes down from heaven. And just like the rain, it accomplishes its purpose on the earth, which is why I'm so thankful for those of you who have, who have planted yourself in this church, because you found a church that teaches the word. And my dad later found that we're building upon. It's line upon line, precept upon precept, chapter upon chapter, book after book. We're getting into the word, but the word is getting into us, which means the power of God can be released. Praise the Lord. That's what Jesus prayed for his disciples. He prayed that you'd be safe, that you'd be sent, and that you'd be set apart. And let me just close with this thought. 
It's not just something that he prayed way back then. These are things that he's continuing to pray right here and right now. You know, Romans 8.34 is a wonderful, wonderful verse. And it talks about who is he that condemns? No one. It is Christ Jesus who died and has arisen. And indeed, he is seated at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us. The same Jesus who prayed for his disciples 2,000 years ago is praying for you right now. He's praying, Father, keep them safe. Father, send them out. Father, set them apart. Release your word through them. And that's my prayer for you tonight as well. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this powerful, powerful prayer. We worship you, King Jesus. It's humbling to think that you would pray for us. And yet, it's what you're doing right now. You are the great I am. And some of you would say, I don't feel strong enough. And Jesus would say to you, I am. You say, I don't feel smart enough. And Jesus would say, I am. You say, I'm not good enough. He would say, I am. I'm not loving enough. Jesus says to you, I am. And, and he is for you what you could never be in your own, on your own rather. And he's praying for you and he loves you. He's interceding for you. You're not alone. There's a God in heaven who loves you. He's with you in this moment. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence. Thank you for releasing your Holy Spirit in this moment to meet every person, to minister to every heart, to release healing, to release power, to release grace, to release transformation in this room. That as we have sat under the word, it is taking root, it's taking hold, and it's driving out all of the parts, all of the things that aren't congruent with your grace. All of the things that don't look like you are getting chiseled away. Lord, we surrender. We submit. We come under the authority of the word tonight. We pronounce Jesus is king. Will you say that with me? Say Jesus is king. Say his word is true. I am his servant. He is my king. Heaven is my home. This planet is my mission. Lead me in grace. Send me forth in your love for the glory of your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.